Okay, yeah, this is Frank Bill, and my book, Back to the Dirt, follows uh, a factory working vet by the name of Miles, and uh, the terminal he gets into of thinking he's going to lose his job, steroid deal goes bad, and he's in search of his uh, girlfriend who can't be found that may or might not have uh, been involved in a murder, and uh, things go really uh, wild and trippy between booze and LSD and a lot of bad decisions. Um, I want to start out, I really want to start out talking about the book by acknowledging um, how unsubtle the the book is at the beginning about being at least to some degree inspired by your father and his experiences in Vietnam. Am I, am I right about that? Because like, there's like a, there's a dedication at the beginning and then almost at the very beginning of the book what you are explaining about miles, the main character sounds pretty much exactly like what you, you establish in that dedication, right? Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, <laughs> miles is like a, a combination of me and my time in the factory and things that I had to deal with, but then the stories and the people I work with over the years, cause I've been there almost 30 years. Um, and then the other part is just the things that my father would talk about. And then I had some sit down conversations with him about different things. Um, the one thing I didn't get to sit down and talk to him about was like um, when he, he got injured, um, I didn't get to talk to him, which is a hard thing. That's a hard subject to talk about my dad, even though he would talk to me about it because, you know, you know, basically somebody stepped, he was a minesweeper um, and they had different roads that went from, or they called him would go from the road to go to another hill, which is the other, the other hill would be another base. Um, you had like a special forces base, a recon base, and then recon units also come into where he was at with just a regular Marine crew. And the, I guess basically the tanker division that he was serving with. And he had to sweep that road every day um, in front of, in front of the, uh, the tanker, you know, the, 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 uh, the tanker division to make sure they didn't run over any landmines or anything. And then when somebody found something, one of the other guys, had found a landmine and when they went to dig it up, I guess they either stepped on it or went to dislodge it from the ground. Well, it, it blew up and killed that guy, but that guy getting killed blocked my dad from getting killed also, but he ended up getting hearing damage and some other things. Um, there was a big write up about it in the newspaper here, our town paper. And, uh, you know, he basically helped, uh, there was another, another battle called operation, uh, Allenbrook where, uh, I think it was like an eight hour firefight and it pretty much killed everybody. Wow. Doom, but a, a couple of guys that didn't get killed. And, uh, you know, whenever they finally finished with that little battle or whatever, he ended up, uh, I think sustaining some wounds, but he ended up staying and helping to load the dead. You know, even though he was hurt, he put himself before everybody else to help out. Um, and then, uh, I got to meet one of the guys that he helped save, which dad, my dad hadn't talked to him since that had happened. And this is just probably about 10 years ago. They finally got to finally meet again, come to find out the guy had been coming to Louisville, Kentucky for the past like 20 years. Cause he's in horse racing and my dad didn't know it, <laughs> but they connected because my dad had went back to research to get his purple heart because they owed him a purple heart and he never got it. Um, so he had to reconnect with some of the people who were still alive. And uh, that was one of the guys he, uh, uh, reconnected with. And, uh, when I got to go over and meet him, that's what my dad said, man, you look a lot better than that day than, than you did when we had that firefight. He said, man, you look better than me. So what the hell have you been eating and drinking? You know, that's just my dad. My dad's very comical about stuff. There's always the dark humor with him. But yeah, the opening is actually comes from a real story uh, from a guy that I worked with named, uh, he doesn't work there anymore. His name was Bruce. 
And when he was younger, there was a guy that owed him money on night shift that had borrowed money from him. And uh, he wasn't into steroids or anything, but he, uh, he owed, the guy owed him money. I don't know if it was for food or drugs or what it was. And he got tired of asking the guy to pay him back. So he finally just basically beat the shit out of the guy and took him to the ATM and said, get the money out because you owe me. And it's one of those things that just stuck with me. You just have to know this guy because he was really a hard worker, <laughs> but he talked like a sailor. But, you know, he was he had a heart of gold. But, you know, every every, every other word was MF this and SOB. And you know, but that's that's kind of the culmination of how I pulled all those things together. Um, yeah, this book is probably about the most autobiographical book that I've written as far as story-wise, you know, really pulling from myself and my family and where I work and, you know, just, just the different hardships at war, you know? Yeah, that was going to be, um, the other part that I was going to mention was the, well, first of all, kind of the location that things take place in, um, and the, the working in the factory, I knew that was, if not inspired by your personal experience, then something that you knew about. So, um, yeah, that's definitely the impression I got knowing you. And I, I, I got to imagine that probably people who aren't as familiar with you personally might not pick up on that. But like, um, I was like, oh, yeah, Frank's really pulling from, you know, stuff that's close to close to home. So, yeah, even the explosion, because that was the explosion that's in the book. That was me. You know, I had to basically uh, I had to rip an air conditioner unit out of the wall and climb through an air conditioner duct to get out of the building when it blew up. Wow. With a dust explosion. Yeah. That's, that's, yeah, I mean, <laughs> how long ago did that happen? I really pulled from a lot of stuff from just from either life experience, you know, just it's, it's, there's a lot of truth in the book. And that's that yeah. the actual factory, everything that's in there. That's, that's really happened. Uh, we used to have a foreman. It was really kind of a uh, hard nose. He was kind of racist, you know, and you had to deal with that yeah. kind of stuff. He didn't really care. You know, he called it shit birds all the time. I mean, it was, it was things back then that you're in a, you're in a factory, which I understand you're going to have jokes and all that kind of stuff. There's no salty language is pretty much what you have, but you know, he, didn't yeah. care. You know, he, he ran his building the way he wanted to run it. And that's how it was going to be ran, you know? Yeah. How long ago did that explosion happen? Cause that was in around, that was around insane. 2006, somewhere around in there. Wow. Yeah, because my, my wife could have talked to it because I had just, I was talking to her on the phone. I was in a downstairs office and you have these two spray dryers out the window, you see. And you'd, the spray dryers basically spin it, gosh, I forget how fast it is, like 600 miles per hour. And it whips whips the the uh, the wet clay in there, and it whips it around all this, this wheel inside and it shoots it against the walls of the spray dryer. And that spray dryer is like 350 degrees. And it, when it hits the walls, it hits that, it dries and it rolls down those walls and it goes into a feed screw goes up through some conveyors and stuff and separates some bad stuff to keep the good powder. And it comes down and fills a bin up and you go to this machine and you put a bag on there and you fill that bag up 50 pounds. It's done. You start the next one. You're stacking them up. The thing is, is that dust is highly explosive and flammable. Now, if it piles up in there, it's not okay. Well, there used to be metal detectors within the system because sometimes maintenance does stuff and a screw or something can get can fall in there. You know, it just depends if they're working on something and everything's really self-contained. And they had these, I tried to explain it within the, the context of the book. They were these gray, uh, they were called halon balls. And if it, it, it recognized three different things, which, you know, what makes, what makes fire, you know, you know, you have to have air, you have to have heat and a flame explosion, whatever it recognizes. As soon as it gets some type of a, a sensor for a flame within the system, it, it disperses. Well, I'm on the phone and these are all over this system from the spray dryer all the way down to the 
through the feed screws, the bag house, and to the where the bag machines at. And I can look out the window. I'm talking to my wife because we're talking about we were married. We were we always go to Brown County, Indiana, and I was talking on the phone because we're talking about making plans where we're gonna go up for our anniversary. Well, all of a sudden I start hearing, okay, I'm like that's a fucking halon ball. And then I hear another one's going off. Well, each one of those balls is chasing this flame through the system, and then the next thing I know, when it gets to the very end. There's an area where you could check the feed screw to make sure you're getting material. So I didn't have that, uh, uh, they didn't have it latched down like it's supposed to. So it ends up, it blew that open. And when I seen it blow open, a flame about the size of if you were standing behind an airline and, you know, the blue flame that comes out for a jet, it shot up. It was about four feet round and went up about 20 feet up in the air. And I said, fuck, you know, I think I hung up on her and I, my immediate reaction was to get underneath the desk because there's a desk there and do the old tornado drill and put my hands on my head. And as soon as I did that, I just heard kaboom and something hit the door, which there's a safety railing that goes around. And that boom that hit the door was it blew the rail off and it blew it like probably about, <laughs> probably about 20 feet away and it blew it off. You know, it's steel. <laughs> it broke all the welds. Well, not only did it break all the welds, you know, I mean, it busted up all this iron and metal you know it blew it all apart that connected to the bag house so whenever i came out from underneath the, the desk i look out the window all i see is black and i hear air i'm thinking gas i'm thinking there's a gas leak which it wasn't it was actually air and i'm thinking well the lights are out well no i'll go to crack the door there's no lights in the building that is black dust and i'm like <laughs> i can't you know i can't leave the office to go open the door because i because i thought about it. i'm like well if i cover my mouth could i get out of here i'm like no you know as soon as i inhale that or it's organo clay it's gonna it's gonna kill me you know i wouldn't have made it so then i'm like can i i go through the motions of how do i get the fuck out of here <laughs> excuse my language i'm looking at the ceiling i pull the ceiling apart and it's all braced in with the two by sixes and i look over at the air conditioner duct now I said, I'm going out the duct and it, they had this air conditioner all bolted in and I just grabbed it and I ripped, I didn't even, I tugged one time and ripped it out of the wall, threw it on the floor, <laughs> climbed into the air conditioner duct, get to the end. Well, it's, it's reinforced with metal at the end. So I had to pull myself back out and then I went in feet first and then I kicked it out and it came out in the uh, alleyway there beside our building. And then I heard some people out there going, Oh, there's Frankie, there's Frankie. You know, I'm like, yeah. And EMS shows up and you know, they're looking for the, material safety data sheets for the fire department and everything like that. And they put me in EMS. I forget my blood pressure was like 140 over something. It was fucking crazy, you know? Yeah. Yeah. It was, it was was an actual event. (laughs) That's yeah. That was, was um, that, that was, that was crazy. And then, and that's honestly like of the stuff that I read, I was thinking, Oh, that was something that, maybe that was something that he was fearful of happening or had heard would happen. I didn't think that that was something that came from a real experience. So that's pretty crazy. Um, <laughs> what, what's the end of the story if you weren't in that office? If, if somebody would have been, the been dead, you know, that was the, that was the other thing, yeah. that, you know, the guy that, that the one bag house or the one bagging machine, cause it wasn't my bagger. It was another guy's. The one guy had just finished bagging it out, you know, um, and he went upstairs, you know, from upstairs. That's what, you know, my, my chief, he came out and he's like, he couldn't, he thought about coming downstairs, but he couldn't get to me because it was just black. You know, he just, everybody went out the back of the building and came back. Yeah. When they came back around, they're coming through. It's kind of like an alleyway because there's an alleyway that leads to our other warehouse. When we come out and you get a finished product, it's wrapped on a pallet. You drive out the alleyway, take over the warehouse and then come back. So, um, yeah, everybody's like trying to figure out where I'm at, you know, and what the hell just happened, you know? So it was, it was, yeah, it was interesting <laughs> to say the least. <laughs> Um, 
So from the present day life of Miles that like you mentioned, so he's working in this factory. He's um, there's an element to the story where um, like that initial kind of conflict with a, with a coworker is about steroids. And the way that it starts out, I was thinking, Oh, this is going to be some, some steroid stuff, some like illegal steroid use stuff. And that ended up being less of a presence in the story than I, I expected it to be. Um, so, uh, where did that draw from like stuff that you'd seen in life or anything, or, or was that just, um, uh, just a way to, I mean, a way to like people who've done steroids, but it's more about, you know, why do people do steroids? You know, cause everybody wants to get steroids in yeah. that rap. And a lot of it has to do as you get older, testosterone dives. And, you know, as, as a guy, you're trying to keep fit. If you're into lifting weights and things like that, or strength training, and you're trying, you're, you're fighting age. The older you get, you're always fighting yeah. age. It's just something that we do. And that was a, that was something that kind of stuck in my brain because I kind of feel like we all do as, as, as men, we're always fighting age. You know, we're wanting to, you know, you, as you, when you wake up in the morning, you're a little more stiff than you used to be. You've been in to do something. It hurts a little bit more. And, you know, and just from lifting weights and stuff, you know, I mean, I know how it is. I, I don't use steroids, by yeah. any means, but, you know, <laughs> Um, yeah, and that's honestly the way that it tied into the the life of of Miles totally made sense because it seemed like you know post war it was a person who um, like in everyday life had I'm trying to think of the best way to say this uh, not habits or behaviors but like an expectation of their physical self and sure. like you said with age that becomes harder and harder to accomplish so like. Yeah, it, it tied in nicely with uh, developing almost um, the not um, ha- not habits. Why I'm I'm really stumbling with words, um, like the way that the way that Miles thinks life should be, or the things that he finds important, or something like that. Priorities, maybe priorities is the word. Right? Yeah, because. because I mean, you have to look at he was if he was a Marine recon, you know, that's an elite unit back in the day and it still is today um it's it's changed something it's called the soft unit now which stands for something else but it's it's basically it's basically a recon unit um and you were you know you were high level well as you age you kind of lose that high level that you could once do you know so you're you're constantly questioning that how do i how do i keep that you know you don't you don't want to lose a grasp of that you know and that, that ties into everything you do in your life from making correct choices to leadership you know and all those types of things, you know, that's, that's why a lot of people continue strength training when they get older is because you may not feel like doing it, but it does help you get out of bed. And it does help you keep picking things up and not having to ask somebody for help. You know, that's, um, I'm yeah. not going to test to it at my job. I mean, I got guys that are just a little bit older than me to go to do something. I'm like, Hey, I'll get, I'll climb up here and grab it. And they're like, how the hell are you climbing up there? I said, well, because I move every day. You've got to do that. You know? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, there's so many different things that it helps. And I, that's, that kind of tied into him, you know, as a, as a as a military guy because it's this i guess discipline would be the word you know yeah thank you i was discipline. i don't know why you know because that's what the military um, teaches you whenever you that's how you make progress to those officer units and what what have you yeah it's always about discipline yeah i actually can kind of empathize so like um we talked a little bit beforehand about how um i had gone through cancer and obviously there was some treatment for that and my big thing is reading. So it's nothing physical. It's nothing like, you know, active, but, um, there was a point during my treatment where I had read, I was reading a book and I got like, I had spent maybe 15 or 20 minutes 
reading and I was just like, I, my brain can't do this. And it's because I had all this, I was basically being poisoned for, you know, months. And I like was so, it's one of those things where it's like, you, you don't really understand how important it is to you until you feel like it's being taken away. Um, so like when I was reading this, I was thinking, I totally understand because like, if I started to lose my mental faculties, it would be, I would do whatever I want, uh, whatever I could to kind of like maintain that, that level. Uh, So, yeah. Yeah. To hold a grasp on it as, as well as you can, Yeah, whatever to keep, because what you don't have control of certain things sometimes, and you're trying to maintain that control and find things that can help you maintain that control or understand how to control things better or slow the progression. All of those. Yeah, definitely. Yep. Yeah. So yeah, I identified with that. I was like, I get it, buddy. (laughs) Um, uh, so the, and we're not going to, I'm not going to walk through like beat by beat what happens in the story. So I'll probably jump around a little bit, but, um, because I really, there's just some themes that I picked up on. Um, and so like, in order to talk about one thing that I, I thought was interesting, um, we got to talk a little bit about some of the other characters. Um, so you've got miles is the ostensibly pretty much the main character, the protagonist, um, and then a close second would be Shelby, the girlfriend, yes. um, who has a brother named Wiley. Um, and Wiley has a interaction early on with um, someone who is selling drugs. Yes. The drug, like uh, Oxy. I think it's Oxy, right? I can't remember. Yeah, because at the time when I wrote the book, Oxycodone was really big, which now it's fentanyl, you know, basically like a derivative. Yeah. They're all derivatives of one another, you know, but yes. Yeah. Um, and it was that like, uh, so the interaction is like, there's this person who's selling Oxy and then they don't have what, you know, Wiley wants. And so there's like a confrontation and it goes as badly as it can. And that's kind of one of the early conflicts of the, of the story. Um, but what's, what I think is interesting about what really stuck with me about, um, I can't remember the name of the character who was the, the one who was dealing the oxy. Oh, the brother. Um, yeah. Um, Nathan- Nathaniel's brother. Um, Nathaniel's brother. Gosh. So, but that's okay. Uh, so, <laughs> <laughs> The thing that I found interesting about that, and I think it's kind of thematic in the book, and what I'm what I'm getting toward is Bedford. So Nathaniel's Bedford. And Judy. I'm sorry. Yeah, Bedford. Yeah, Bedford. Bedford. Bedford and Judy. Yeah. Um, it's it's made clear that it seemed like this Bedford character um was kind of on the straight and narrow, and um something bad happened in their life. Uh, they were on. Was he on? He's on some sort of disability, or was unable to move, or something. He was like working that, right? at the the Kellers here in Corden. He hurts his back, and he ends up getting addicted, just like everybody else who yep. ends up doing. Oxy. Yeah. you know, it's it's a at the time before you know Oxy. They realized what Oxy was doing to people. You know, getting addicted to it. You know, I don't know if yep. uh, what is the movie uh, or the TV series? I think it's is a dope sick, and it kind of explains the whole progression of how everything happened. You know, doctors yep. realize what they're prescribing to people and what they were actually doing to people until it's too late. You know, and then you ruin all these lives. Yep. And, um, and so what I what I thought was compelling for me about that character, and then also I guess Wiley in a way is like they were people who were just normal everyday people who you wouldn't consider to be criminals, and one thing goes wrong. 
and it totally changes the course of their lives in like the worst way. Um, so I have to imagine, especially like if you were writing it around the time that Oxy was such a plague basically for people that those stories weren't hard to come by, but it's, it's a really compelling, uh, thing. So was that in, how, how was that inspired for you? Cause it, it happened in multiple characters in the book. So it has to be kind of an important theme in some way. Well, originally, you know, I started writing this the same time I wrote the Savage. Um, and that was like around 2011, I think. And I think we sold, I think we sold this around 2012, 2013. Mm-hmm. And the rough draft was a little, the, the rough draft, pretty much the first part of the story pretty much stayed intact. The second part of the story changed a lot because originally Nathaniel was more of a, of a, of a villain. Um, and I came back and reworked that entire, because it was a rough draft too. Um, mm-hmm. and, and basically with those two characters, what I had was, you know, his best friend is something that ends up basically using him, the doctor shop, you know, that was his whole thing. You know, he doctor sh- makes him yeah. doctor shop and in order for him to doctor shop, he realizes that he can make money that way too, because, you know, he's on disability. Disability is just not going to cut it, but he's also trying to raise his son. And, uh, those, it seems like when I was writing that, there was actually a story or stories that I'd been reading in the local papers when I was doing a little bit of research on top of probably other family dramas um, tied to Oxy, you know, because that, that's what I always pull from different different things and then research them um, and, and get as much as I can cl- as close to the truth. So, yeah. Um, yeah. And it just how it, 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 I mean, it, it's, it's like you went through cycles, you went from oxygen and then you had meth and now you have fentanyl. Uh, I think even opane has another one, it, which is a derivative of, uh, oxy or not of oxy, but of, uh, of fentanyl, you know, opane had pretty much destroyed or decimated, uh, Austin, Indiana here a few years back, back in like 2015, 2014. It was horrible. You know I mean? It just destroyed the entire town. So it's it, it, painkillers, man. That, it's, it's, I try to stay away. From yeah, them. I mean, <laughs> they're poison. I mean, it's it's horrible. Yeah, yeah. Um, and I was I what I didn't really. So what I am discovering about myself is like when I'm reading something, I try to see like how can I like connect a feeling I've had to like what's going on. And my uh, aunt and uncle worked, uh, you know, like uh, uh, union jobs when I was really young and um, we're, you know, we're in good shape and everything and they were on a good trajectory and everything. And they, they got laid off and um, there was like, you know, that kind of moment of desperation for them where, you know, they chose to go into some criminal stuff and it ended up being something where it was horrible and it kind of ruined a lot of stuff for them. And, and so when I see the, this type of thing in your story, um, for me, the thing I, I pull out of it is like that something happened to these people and it pushed them in a direction that was devastating. And so like, and, and I, it, I'm grateful that, and I, I haven't really approached looking, watching the documentaries about Oxy or like that dope sick show, because I feel like I have to get in a nice mental place to do that first. Cause it's going to be really grim, but it's nice that there's more kind of people talking about like, this is something that was done to people and for very greedy reasons. Um, and like, it's not a weakness of an individual person, like no, no, the no. evil, real, real evil happened. 
And it was devastating to people in ways that like, it's kind of hard to see at the surface. Right. Well, you know, when I write about characters like that, I mean, they're flawed. Yes. But they've reached that point where they don't realize what they're doing. And before it's too late, you're wrapped up into something. And now this is all you, that's, you only see that that's your only way out. Not only are you you addicted, but that's also become your income. So what am I supposed to do now? You know, it's right. Yeah. It's uh, it's sad. It's very sad. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So I, it, uh, that's definitely part of the book that I was like, okay, um, there's, it's, it's all too common. And, and like, yeah, especially if it was then that you were writing it, like I can see that it would be like a big deal, but it's never, it's always something new. Like you were saying, like, it's not, it's not something that's going to be easy to make go away. (laughs) No. And you know, the sad thing is, is that, you know, with things like painkillers is that when they get rid of one, there's always something else they're going to put on the market and somebody else is going to manipulate it. You know, it, it's it's a, it's yep. a never ending cycle, basically. It's a, a vicious cycle, whatever you want to call it. You know, right? It's, it's never ending. Yeah, um, but you know, um, it's yeah. I don't, I don't know. I don't have a follow up to that. It's it's well, yeah. It's, it's, just a, very, it's a very bleak book, and I mean, it, it shines a light on we want to call it flyover flyover country, Midwest. But it, there's a lot of there's a lot of truth and honesty in it. You know. Uh, you know, most of the reviews we received back from pretty much all of them were positive, you know, if, if not spectacular, um, mm-hmm. even like the Kirkus review, it, it, it like hints around that it kind of wants to not go to the point to say that they liked it, but everything they say about it, reads like <laughs> it but it reads like the jacket copy of a book, you know, it, it gives yeah. them all good marks, you know, they just wouldn't, you know, they just basically kept saying, you know, this is very bleak. Well, it is because when you, these are the, the material and the subject matter is not going to be rosy. I don't write crazy books. There's no (laughs) puppy dogs and uh, cuddles and kisses because that's just not what I write. I I pull from what I know and what interests me. You know, I think it's things that need to be talked about. Right. Yeah, no. Yeah, totally. And what I, so this might just be me too interpreting. And I, and I've discovered that through years of talking to authors after book after book, sometimes I read into things differently than maybe the author intended, but I found this book to be pretty nonviolent. Um, if that makes sense, like there's no real, I think a lot of the drama, at least for me, the way I took it in a lot of the drama, a lot of like the hard stuff and the bleak stuff that you're talking about is like internal to the people, to the characters. It's like inner demon. Um, yeah. Yeah. Inner demons. Yes, absolutely. And so like for me, I, and, and then I, it actually, to the point where I was questioning myself, I was like, think back to Frank's other books, how much actual literal violence was there versus like <laughs> the inner demons kind of stuff. Right. And so I was questioning myself. So like in my mind, this is a less overt literal violence book and more of, of that other stuff, that inner demon stuff. Is that, does that track with how you feel about it? Or am I, I in my head about think, that? You know, it's, it's a personal book. It deals with, there's a, there's a lot of themes in it. There's gun violence. There is uh, mental health, um, yeah. personal health, you know, and, uh, you know the inner demons things, uh, uh, the, the societal norms, you know, how, how do the societies get affected by different things? And then the horrors of war, you know, I mean, there's a, it's, yeah. you know, there's, you can even call it a horror novel I mean, because it's, it's psychological. It's very psychological with the, with the mental part, yeah. even with the main character. 
in the female character, you know, and then even a brother who loses his brother. There's just all these psychological parts of the book that, that just, I had good editors, you know, well, I always have good editors. But they really, I mean, the notes that I got on this and for me to sit down and really pick apart and really brainstorm out to make things much better, you know, than they were was a major help, you know, I, but I, I, I pulled as much as I could from everything that I know, you know, and everything that I've dealt with or people I've known. So, yeah, it's, it's definitely all there. Yeah. Um, another kind of big thing, and we haven't really talked much about Shelby. Um, and I think I'm, I'm timid about talking too much about Shelby because of stuff that happens later in the book. But, um, sure. I, I have to imagine that it was pretty intentional that Miles has war trauma and, and stuff that is a constant presence in his life. And then Shelby has her childhood trauma plus any other trauma that's happened since then that is a constant presence in her life. So um, obviously they're kind of analogs for each other um, and their relationship to me was there an intentional kind of like they fit together because like few people understand how they're feeling or like the way they get, or was like, was that part of it? Yeah, it was too, it's like two broken souls, even though there was an age gap, you know what I mean? And you know, a lot yeah. of the, the, the trauma came from the things that I heard as a kid, you know, with I had having an abusive world war two grandfather and I never met the guy until I was much, much older. But uh, you know, the, the horror stories I hear from my grandmother and my mother and the abuse that they went through and it kind of tied into that whole psych of that character. Um, and I kind of built on it from there. And then of course, you know, my, my dad serving in Vietnam, my grandfather serving in world war two. There's these two people that have post-traumatic stress, which my dad's kind of the, a different generation, but it was similar to the generation of world war two, but world war two really didn't talk about shit, you know, you know, Vietnam yeah. later on, realized it was okay to talk you know my dad talks to people in group you know not necessarily therapy for him which it is i'm sure therapy for him but you know he talks to people about what he's been through and it helps other people open up too and I, I tried to tile those psychological factors of what war does to somebody but then also abuse as as as, as a young kid and growing up and having to deal with that because i mean I, I watched you know my grandmother and my mother and grow up with that um, I, I don't yeah. either one of them ever come to terms with it, but you know, that was a big, big source in the book was, you know, mental health, you know, cause people, yeah. that's it's very overlooked in, in the U S you know, people don't get help for it, you know, and I've had family members, members that have had, you know, mental health issues and it's horrible to see that your government doesn't help you with it. You know, it's pathetic, you know, that, uh, it just kind of gets blown off. You know, we got more important things to worry about. Well, not really. We don't because these are people that live here and they're citizens. They should be taken care of just like everybody else, you know? Um, yeah it's another thing that is done to people in a way like um another evil that's visited on people um the from from reading it one of the things that was kind of a baseline in my head as i'm reading the story is like there's a whole lot of like internal um it's like there's a fire raging in someone's head and no one can see it so the way they treat that person they don't have the context of like this person's got so much other stuff that's influencing them internally that um, they don't necessarily know, Oh, this person is also dealing with the trauma that, that never goes away. So um, I, I got 
that was kind of something that was um, kind of present for me as I was reading through it. Like, yeah, they're carrying it with them day to day. On the outside, they look like a normal human being, but on the inside, it's like there's a maniac inside of them, which you don't realize. Yeah, or like a split personality, that kind of thing. Yeah, definitely. Right. Yeah, and um, and so like to that point, Miles as a character to me, my walking away from that book uh, when I was done reading the whole thing, um my impression as a person who doesn't have that in my life is better man than me. Like, I, I don't know if I would be able to be that person and, and make the choices I, I, you know, he did. Um, so a, a respectable person for sure. Yeah. 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 That, well, you know, one of the things that, that, that helped influence a lot of things with miles was, it was, was my dad, of course, being in a war, but you know, the guy that, uh, it gotten, if I remember correctly, the guy that got blown up, I think was actually from Louisville, Kentucky. I'm pretty sure that guy was. And my dad always talked about that, you know, he had looked up the family and wanted to call and talk to him and tell him what happened and that he knew him, but he just never could do it. It's just something he couldn't, it's something he always lived with and carried with him, you know, and he couldn't do it. Yeah. Um, it was just kind of the, a lot of the influences that went into that character, you know, it was just full things I carried around um, from um, notes and everything and tried to perceive a much bigger picture of that. Um, mm-hmm. but then the other side of that is to add a book that I'd read for research was, uh, um, gosh, tigers. Uh, is, it, is it not, it's not flying tigers, tiger. Is it tiger force? I think it's tiger force was a special, uh, special forces unit that towards the end of the war, um, they basically started pulling these guys in and it became a war of numbers. And, uh, they basically said, Hey, um, we're not so much worried about the enemy anymore. It's just, you just start killing everybody. You know, that's, that's not a U.S. soldier. It's a VC. You fuck, you just go in, you wipe out villages. And these guys, two New York times reporters went in and researched all this way back, following everybody that had actually lived. And those guys that were part of those units were just, if they were still alive and were telling these stories, it was just uh, horrifying what they, what they were dealing with, you know, in modern day, they couldn't live in normal society anymore because of what they had done. You know, because they were killing innocent yeah. people, basically, which that's part of the, that goes into part of the book, you know, because they end up hunting a unit that basically does the same thing. So, no, that's, that's actually, yeah. I think that book was, or not that book, but the story for that book, before that book ever came out, was where Apocalypse Now came from. Um, that whole gotcha. idea. So, it, it kind of, it kind of spawned my idea, too, because it was, there's a reality there, you know, the, the mm-hmm. more war stories that people don't know about, you know, and I think, in the actual book, I think one of the, the main guys was, uh, he was an Indian from an Indian reservation. He was one of the head guys in one of those. And when they found him, I mean, he was living in a burnout trailer and on drugs and everything else because of everything he'd done. He just never come to terms with it. It totally screwed the rest of his life up, you know, but I can only yeah. imagine, you know. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, War is a horrible thing, you know, and I, that's, <laughs> I, I mean, that's one of the things I talk about at the end of the book whenever I wrote the afterward, you know, because I had thought about joining the military twice and you know my dad was pretty much yeah he respects the military but he really didn't want his son join the military and uh you know if he would ever taken me to the recruiter's office i would have probably went and joined but he just never really showed an interest there and didn't really want me to do it you know um i mean even when the afghan iraq war whichever one it was uh i mean he even talked about it when they were talking about uh rumors were going around they were going to open the draft again he's like you're not going i'll go before you go and i'm like 
I think I have a say in it, Dad. He's like, no, well, I will. Because <laughs> he was still in the military. He ended up reenlisting like years later, uh, back in the early eighties. Um, he reenlisted into the Army Reserve, and uh, he retired from that after like uh, twenty-two or twenty-three years. And he was still in the service whenever uh, the uh, when Iraqi freedom or whatever started. Or I think it's what it was. Is that the second one? Yeah, the second Iraqi war. Whenever it, that conflict started, he uh, right. Yeah, he was still still enlisted, but you know. Yeah, he just did not want me going. <laughs> well, he knew stuff you didn't. So yeah, yeah. I mean, he had, yeah. I mean, he could sit down and tell you more stories that are not even in the book. I mean, yeah, you could sit down and talk to him. And it's just you know, it still rattles off in his head because that's what he's seen every day. Sweeping, he was either sweeping those roads every day to make sure that there weren't landmines, or they were out on a search and destroy mission out in the jungle somewhere. You know, he could tell you. You know, going to the different yeah uh, to the different. Uh, villages and stuff that were around the area it's uh and that's that's the other thing i have a, a good good many of the pictures that he took while i was over there he took a lot of photos you know and brought them back that's cool yeah yeah they're well some of them are in the book too yeah um all right so on that one of the things that happens is um in miles's past uh was or or i guess in the book that pops up several times is the whole like being accused of like hunting other American soldiers more or less. Um, so uh, did that come up through your research or is that, you know, like something you heard through? That's, that's what I was talking about. What that, that's what that other book was about. That it was based. Right. Right. Okay. Apocalypse now was based from was that they, my, my spin was that they were actually hunting those guys, you know, that they were, they were hunting. Gotcha. These, these basically these GIs that went, went rogue with the government that you didn't know about. They were just going just to kill anybody that was a VC or they were good or bad, you know, they were just killing innocent farmers, yeah, that kind of thing, you know, because it became a war of numbers towards the end of the war. Right. Okay. That makes sense. Yeah. Cause like that lined up, but like, yeah, the, the whole idea that mile, well, the thing for me was um, now that this person basically chose to do the right thing. Um, the decision was unpopular because it was like you were going against your own. And so now, right. You have to like, and nobody knew what the other what, people were doing. That's the other thing about it, you know. Right, and and what's the more powerful emotion? Is it doing the right, choosing to do the right thing when it's hard to do, or is it living with the stain of people thinking that you're the worst of the worst because of that? So, um, I thought that was an interesting uh, thing that you evoked there too. Yeah, like the kind of, I guess like the lesser of two evils. <laughs> yeah, but like you know, con- I'm sure that in war you're battling with your conscience pretty much constantly 24 seven. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, my, um, my cousin fought in the Iraqi war and that's what he said, you know, or as well as my dad says too, you know, the, there's much, there was not much difference between those. It's just that one is fought in the sand and the other one was fought in the jungle. But every day you're starting to listen to shit explode. You know, you, you never really get yeah. used to that. That's just, it's not a sound effect. It's just, there's always a rumble and there's always gunfire 24 seven, you know, and you never know how close it is as far as when I say close, how close is, or I guess how close it's getting that it could get to you. You know, uh, that's, yeah. that, that's something that plays with your conscience. Even when you come home, I mean, that's why a lot of guys when they come home or they want to reenlist and go back because they can't stand the silence of being in everyday life, you know? Yeah. Back home. I think that, so for me, my thought was, it's one thing to do the armchair quarterback thing of being like, Oh, you, you know, in this fucking insane chaotic situation, you made a decision. It was bad, but like 
decision making when it's on paper after the fact is way different than when, you know, all of the crazy chaos that's going around you during war, like, you know, you can't understand necessarily why things were done or why the way they were done or whatever it is too. Yeah. Right. Yeah. You can't, you definitely can't. Unless you were there. Exactly. (laughs) That's that's how it should be with everything. I mean, it's, when it's a split second decision or last minute, you know, it's, you've got to make, (laughs) you can get judged all you want, but nobody knows unless they were, you know, in that same situation. It's always easy to sit there and break down. Well, I would have done this or done it this way. You don't know that. Because there's all kinds yeah. of stressors. When all those stressors start hitting, it's all about how everything fights. It's not everything than me being in the explosion. You know, it's, it's hey, do I really want to go out in the building and die? <laughs> I mean, that was, yeah. You know, I had to sit there and go through all these little things about, okay, I can't go out there. How do I go out? I'm looking for a way out. The phone line doesn't work. That was the other thing. The phone line didn't work. And the next thing I'm doing is like, there's a there's no windows. Well, there's an air conditioner. Well, there's my, that's my out. And that's what I looked for. And that's where I went. You know, it's just you yeah. act. May not always be the right reaction, but I reacted, you know, luckily it was the right yep. reaction. No, it's yeah. And like, even if there was like a emergency protocol for that situation, it's like, who's going to go find the steps to go through or whatever. Like you just got to do what you're doing. Yeah. Right. The maintenance guys, <laughs> and you know, even when I came, cause I was off work for a little bit after that and I came back and the maintenance guys are like, how the hell did you get that out of the window? They're like, it took us forever to get that thing up there and get it bolted in. <laughs> You're like, I was trying to survive. <laughs> it was to hold the thing up in the air. I said, I didn't care. I, didn't care. I said, it was adrenaline. I just grabbed it and ripped it out. <laughs> yeah. And tossed. That's, yeah, that's crazy. Um, one of the things that um, throughout reading the book um, that I kind of felt, and I felt not necessarily guilty, but like, I was just like, there was a, it was a, it was a nagging question throughout was paid off like at the very end of the epilogue, which was like, and I'm not going to remember exactly um, how it's said. And if this spoils anything, I don't think it will. Um, But like one of the kind of sentiments at the very end of the epilogue was kind of like, what does any of this really mean anyway, or something like that. And it's, it was so crazy to me that that's kind of where the, you know, the, one of the final thoughts of, of miles, because I had that while I was reading the book from time to time, I'm like, you know, like when you zoom out and and think about things in a bigger picture, I did get that feeling sometimes like, what is, what does this mean? You know, what does any of this mean? So the fact that the book kind of ended on that sentiment, I actually kind of validated the feeling that I was getting throughout. Um, and I'm, and I was like thinking about talking about this and I'm like, how do I say this in a way that doesn't sound like insulting that I don't understand the book, but more like I understand the book. I understood the book in a way I didn't know I did until I kind of got to the end. So I don't know if I have a question there, but um, I, I don't know what kind of thought you have about that. <laughs> well, it's, 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 I mean, you call it the horror war, but it's the horror of, I mean, people in general, you know, and the psychology of everything, you know, it's, I guess the psychology of life, because at the end of the book, that's, yeah, he's like, it still has more, there's, it, it leaves you with more questions than answers still, you know, because even after yeah. the war, even after somebody gets killed, after somebody deals drugs, why they deal drugs, why did everything happen the way it happened? You know, why did it have to happen to this person? Why did it have to happen to that person? Why did you carry all these these basically like ghosts. Why'd you carry those? Cause there's a lot of those in the book too. You know, why do you carry those forever? You know, it, it's, it's like, a, it sounds like a virus, you know, it just kind of infects you and you carry it with you. It's your, it's your luggage. You know, you carry it everywhere you go. 
um, which is part of mental health. You know, that's why people have more yeah. issues. You know, they, they carry these things around like baggage and they don't know how to deal with them, you know, or they don't go to get it dealt with. Or even if they do, then, you know, it becomes into the, that's the other side of things is even if you go to have uh, a diagnosis for something, a lot of times it's just not about talking. They want to prescribe you drugs that maybe make it worse until they yeah. counterbalance it, you know, they, they get your dopamine levels right. You know, there's, and it still offers more questions than answers. I mean, it's just, that's the human mind, I guess the human psych or the human condition, whatever you want to call it, you know? Yeah. And that's something that I've been thinking about lately is, um, how important it is for us to understand why about things a lot when there's a lot of times when, you know, there are unforgiving situations that just happen for no good reason that don't have a good explanation. And that's some of the hardest stuff to deal with is like, yes, could have been anybody. Um, and like, how do you get over something that doesn't make sense? Yeah. The only thing I know you can do with, I mean, it's not to keep it bottled up is to talk about it, you know, but you've got to find the right person to talk to, you know, that's, that's the other thing, you know, don't, yep. don't make it about you listen to them, you know? Yeah. And that's well, and that goes back to what you were saying about people not getting the right help and everything. Yeah. But I think just person to person, um, maybe being better people at, at being present for people and, and, and just listening right. or whatever it is. Yeah. Listen. Yeah. And we're all, we're all guilty yeah. of not doing that. <laughs> Trust me. Right. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> totally. Yeah. Um, but it's hard to have empathy and it's hard to just say, I'm here, lay it on me or whatever. I think it's not something that we're mm-hmm. definitely as Americans. I don't think it's something that um, we ever kind of get. Uh, and we have to kind of develop that on our own. Um, yeah. I think the saddest so. thing about being an American is that we don't know how good we have it. This is the only country you can live in and bitch about how free you are. You, know, you can bitch about your freedom. <laughs> it's, it's, it's kind of insulting sometimes. It's like, dude, do you know how people are living? I mean, uh, not to get political, you can take the Ukraine war, whether you agree with it or not. There's people there who are innocent. They're stuck in between all that and they've lost their homes. They're getting dislodged from their homes. They're stuck in the middle. You know, they, they don't want a war, you know, it's sad, you know, it, it, it yep. it's one of those things that happens, you know, it, it, regardless of what side you're on, there's still these people who are innocent that are involved, you know, you have to always kind of look at the deeper meaning inside of it. Yeah. Yeah. And, um, um, it, but it's like that's another uh, weird balance where um, we can love the country that we live in and the stuff that it provides us and the opportunities it gives us. But like, appreciation. if we don't question, if we don't question anything, then it's causing a problem in the other direction. So it's like we have to find a way to um, say, "This is great. How can we make it better? This is great. How can we make it better?" I think. Yeah. Yeah, you gotta find that that balance, I guess, is what you want to say. Yeah, like, yeah. like an internal balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so but kind of on that general topic, I feel like uh questioning society or maybe not questioning, but commentary on society is a pretty common theme through all of your books. Would you would you agree that? Yeah. Um and there was a lot of there was a little bit there was some back and forth because of uh, the some of the conversations that are had whenever uh, Miles is at work or whenever he's at the bar, um, and those are real conversations that I've you know I've 
eavesdrop on. And I'm like, I, I was trying not to be mean or crude. I'm like, dude, these are blue collar people. And these are the kind of conversations they have. They, they bitch about their jobs. They bitch about the government. They bitch about paying taxes. And they talk about basketball or sports or whatever. And they, you know, it's all a combination because, you know, they feel like the weight of the world is on their back and nobody gives a shit. And so they're going to sit there and complain, you know, I said, they're not sitting in a cubicle all day. So these guys are out here busting their ass. They're getting dirty. And they just, I said, they, all they want to do is they want to pay their taxes, be left alone and be able to do what they want. As long as they're not going out and raping or murdering or mistreating somebody. Most of them. (laughs) I'll say most of them, but you know, (laughs) you know what I'm saying though? Just a, just a normal, just want to be left alone and, and, and not be bothered. I said, and that's the kind of conversations they have. I said that sometimes they kind I said, I worked, I worked with a guy for about five or six years when I got bumped to a different job. And, uh, he was mad every day he come into work, but when he was off work, he got to go home, drink his beer, hang out with his family. If you run into him, he was in a good mood and he was cheerful, but at work, man, he fucking hated it. Yeah. <laughs> um, do you feel like that kind of perspective that you just described is underrepresented or uh, misunderstood kind of in general? I think both. I really yeah. Think both. <laughs> I always try to tell people, you know, cause I've, I've done a couple of interviews where people ask me different things, not necessarily political, but just about my opinion on things. And I'm like, look, what happens in Los Angeles, Chicago or New York and how they feel is completely different than how it is in a rural community. I said, because the problems are not the same everywhere. Everybody's got some right. different structure of problems they have to deal with. So you, you can't always judge or you can't judge a book by its cover, you know, and what, what's good for one yep. side is not always good for the other. So you've got to find that, that middle ground or try to understand both sides. You know, that's, that's why I say I try to be middle of the road about things to understand things. Um, because it's, it's not the same everywhere. Even though this is the United right. States, every state is a little bit different. And as you dig into your, your rural people, working class people, white collar people, you know, blue collar, lower class people, you know, um, they've all got different issues, you know, and different, uh, different, different problems to, to work with. And I, I did kind of note in my mind that the book doesn't necessarily, it never gets preachy about anything really. Um, not to be, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, but it wasn't like conspicuously neutral either. Like, cause like what you have to do as an author is like, you have to go for authenticity. So like when you're writing those conversations that happen in a workplace, the right thing to do is to represent things that actually happen. So I feel like you did a good job of going authentic without kind of owning a message. If that makes sense. Right. Yeah. Yeah. I tried to stay, like I said, I try to stay neutral middle of the road. You know, I, I try not to shift to one side too much, just kind of stay in between and make, make logical points, you know, common sense, you know what, you know what I mean? Try to be a, a common sense type yeah. person. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, you know, it's not like everybody was saying the same thing. There was disagreements and, and like there was nuance between the characters. So, yeah. Um, but I think that one thing that people in general don't do is like you were saying earlier, try to seek out the understanding of people in different circumstances. Right. Um, we could, we could definitely bear to do more, more of that. Right. Yeah, we definitely could. We definitely could. Um, going back to war a little bit. Obviously you did research 
for the book is is it something that you are fascinated outside of that like uh, from either from your personal life connection to it or just in general yeah i think that has a lot to do with the 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 age i grew up in you know i went to the vfw with my dad as a kid all the time and when i wasn't with him i was with my grandmother who was there playing euchre or there's a card game called 31 or there at the american legion hall um I had uncles, great uncles, and a great uncle that fought in the Korean War. I had another, my grandmother's uh, like oldest brother fought in, I think, it seemed like he fought in World War II, the Korean War, and the Vietnam War. Um, <laughs> and he would wow. be like almost 100 years old. Um, and then, you know, the, I, I grew up in basically almost like a military family. You know, Rambo, Clint Eastwood, Chuck Norris, you know, through the 80s and 90s, yeah. basically the 80s and 70s. You know, I was always around. I never, I, I thought every kid, when I was growing up, pretty much had the same childhood as me. You know, I grew up loving Rambo. You know, the the, <laughs> the old black and white movie about a, a drill instructor in the Marine Corps. You know, um, I just thought that's what all kids were into. Um, which, you know, whenever I, I, I read about a lot of guys like uh, uh, Jocko Willenick, I don't know if you know me about him, his Jocko podcast. Uh, he, he writes a lot of books on leadership. He's a retired Navy SEAL his childhood sounds very similar to mine, you know, out playing soldier when you're a kid and pretending you're a soldier and then watching those types of movies and stuff. And then he went on to join the military. It just, with me, it just didn't, it didn't happen. You know, a lot of it had to do with guidance, you know, I didn't have that, that guidance to say, okay, well, let's go and let's sign you up. It was kind of like my dad cracked me up because, you know, the first thing he, he asked me, he's like, Hey, your mom told me that you've been talking to a recruiter. I said, yeah. And he's like, what did he promise you? And I'm like, how the hell did he know he promised me something? <laughs> like, he promised me a Rottweiler. <laughs> like, have you seen the dog yet? And I'm like, no, I haven't seen the dog yet. And he's like, <laughs> he started laughing. He goes, you're not going to see that dog. He said, if you want to really join the military, you let me know and we'll talk about it. And, and you know, I can take you to a recruiter. And I'm like, he's, he'd already started to put doubt in my head. I'm like, okay, he's already telling this guy's lying to me. He already knows it without even talking to the guy, you know? So, but you know, he knew because he, you know, I mean, he was in the military, but you know, I, I grew up around all that and, and I still read books in the military. I love reading military books, mm-hmm. you know, from, well, I've got some here on my desk, you know? Um, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, 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 it's interesting because it's real and it's part of our history, you know, it's part of our culture, you know, and um, people who serve in war should be recognized and thanked. You know, you should always thank somebody for, for serving their country. Because basically, you know, like like my dad told me when he was when he fought in the Vietnam War, the way it was pushed to him was that you're going to fight communism. And that's where he fought, you know, and he felt like yeah. he's like, like he told me, he goes, if somebody if, if somebody come to America and did what I did in Vietnam, I would question it, too, because I don't know this person. You know, even though they're there to help you, you don't know that, you know, because You've already been lied to by your own country. Well, here's another country who's to say that, you know, and they're on your personal property, which over there on this property, but here it is your personal property. So, you know, I would feel the same way. It's an invasion. That's what it feels like. And you're trying to make this person understand that's I'm here to help you. You know, it's it's not always easy to explain, you know, and then you always have a guy who wants to float outside the lines and do something wrong and make you look bad, you know, you know, do what you're not supposed to do. You know, my dad was, my dad was always, that's probably where I get my middle of the road from because that's how my dad is about a lot of stuff. You know, he tries to see both sides. Yeah. I feel like that comes through with miles in the book too, because I think if it wasn't specifically said, it was implied that like, there's that, I understand their perspective of like, this person is, is the enemy 
when we're trying to do a good thing. So I feel like if it wasn't Im- like implicitly said, it was definitely something that I pulled out of the story when I was reading it. So. And I mean, that, that's um, my childhood too. I mean, that's just the way I was raised. You know, my parents didn't, they had friends from all walks of life. And I never thought about that until I was older. I'm kind of like, wow, you know, just, you know, they just, they weren't really, they weren't judgmental people. You know, it didn't matter. I mean, they had, they had gay friends. They had, people of color friends they had white you know they had, had and that's who they, they go out play cards dance party uh these go to music and all that kind of stuff I never thought much about that till i was older i was kind of like well i never really got into knowing that there was crazy people in the world till i started working in a factory and i was like holy shit it was like a culture shock me and the guys i work with always talk about it's it like it was like a culture shock from the to the factory because we're like 19 20 years old and it's like holy shit this is insane <laughs> you know yeah <laughs> Well, yeah, I guess, yeah, once you get out of your bubble of youth and into the world at large, suddenly you're experiencing things in a different way. Well, because you, if you came from a family that didn't really judge people or you never seen the judgment, it's really weird because you go in the factories, like these lines were drawn as like, what the hell? You know? Yeah. Right. Yeah, exactly. Yep. Yep. I. Well, and we're kind of similar in age. I'm 44. Um, and so I feel like there was a lot of stuff that, I, I grew up similarly. My family was um, very like good to everyone kind of thing. Um, and, but there was like the things that kind of permeated culture where after the fact, I'm like, Oh my God, that was really racist. Or, Oh my God, that was really homophobic. Right. And it was just like something that was um, not called out yet, you know? So it was just something that happened in, in life. And only later on, I was like, Ooh, I'm glad I never really like that never stuck with me. And I, I didn't say those things or do those, you know, like that kind of thing. So um, we, I think we have kind of a transitional generation for, for some of the way that like society feels about, about how people are treated. Right. Yeah. And I, I think I really feel like, I mean, this is totally away from the book, but then with the book is that a lot of people don't know their history. And I guess they quit teaching history in, in school years ago. I mean, I, I studied history since I was, I think we had, we started off with Indiana history when I was like third grade. Then you went to world history and U.S. history. And when I got in high school, it was up to you if you wanted to take U.S. history, but you were good, definitely gonna, you definitely had to take world history. And I'm like, do they not teach all this anymore? On top of, we also had somebody that did like a, a study on the Bill family and it traced all of our roots back. And I, I've got that, you know. It's, I feel like people don't know where they come from. So they don't, it's like, you don't know the whole story. They always want to point a finger at something. It's like, well, wait a minute. There's more to the story than what you're saying. You know, um, it's, it's like people don't understand where they come from anymore. You know, I mean, that's, yeah. I, I kind of try to say that. I think there's some things in there about Miles in the book where he always talks about kind of knowing where he comes from and, and then how you treat people, you know, um, because there's some things like, like, like Pi. Pi is a real person. You know, I, I, I never, Got to meet him. I always saw him from afar, and everybody would talk about Pi. And Pi was a guy that, uh, when he retired, I think he worked in that factory for, gosh, I bet he was in there for 30 or 40 years, you know, and he didn't live long after he retired. But uh, I think he could have went and – I think he might have actually played college basketball, um, and he decided to work in a factory for whatever reason. Because back in the 50s – I think back – well, I guess that factory started in the 60s. it was good money. It was just dirty. It was so dirty. You know, hear the horror stories of the people starting in there and he stuck it out. You know, you know, it's, it's, it's hard to, yeah. to, if you didn't go to college, it's hard to find a job making $30 an hour. And he, you know, he stuck it out and he went in every day and put in his time and he got three and four days off a week, you know, but 
Yeah. You know, he was, he was, a, he was a real person, you know, and then that kind of, that was some of that part of his story was me hearing rumors from uh, one of the foremans that, that I knew there that was really just a, a real racist shithead. And everybody would tell you, it's like, you couldn't believe the way this guy acted, you know, it's like, holy shit. Yeah. Um, you said something interesting though, was the not knowing your, um, history. And I feel like, I, and I, no one's never going to get it perfect, but I, I think to a point in my life where, um, I was never raised really valuing spending time with family in general. We were all kind of everybody kind of kept to themselves. It was just a really, we weren't like a big, you see your cousins every Saturday type of family. Um, and it was only when I was kind of doing my own thing, uh, in my twenties that I was like, why don't we see each other? Why don't like <laughs> these people are fascinating. They're, they're right. You know, they're close to me. Like we have a shared thing that no one else I have in my life does. So why? Do, so I started to kind of like push for more involvement with my family. And I think that sometimes your upbringing just doesn't tell you that certain things are valuable and you have to find that on your own. And maybe sometimes you just don't find it. So um, that's a tricky thing too. Like you have like perspective is something that's always, there's work to be done, I think in a way too. Right. Yeah. See, we, uh, we were always on my, either at my, my dad's mother's house every weekend and aunts, uncles, cousins were always there. And then, you know, my cousins on my mom's side, I was around pretty much every weekend on my grandparents' farm and my grandfather was a big uh, coon hunter. You know, he was always out right coon hunting because he raised uh, hound dogs. And the amount of, mm-hmm. I never thought about them because I was a kid. But, you know, the amount of women that came in there that stayed with my grandma while their husbands hunted with my grandfather. And you got to hear the problems that this wife is having with her husband while he's out hunting with my grandfather. You know, you heard all these different stories <laughs> and perspectives and stuff. But, you know, it's there was just a lot of culture I was always around. I never... I wish I'd have had a notebook to write everything down and it, it was all different types of culture too. That was the other thing, you know, um, I won't even get into all that, but there was just, you know, my grandfather hunted with all kinds of different people from all walks of life. Yeah. They were just, it was where they were rich or poor. They were just, it was a sport that everybody was into. My grandfather had uh, coon dogs since he was probably 10 or 11 years old. You know, that's something he, he made like C's and D's in high school, but he was an A plus person when it come to training a dog and hunting. And he did dog shows and all kinds of uh, hunting events all over the, the the Midwest. You know, he, he was well known at, at some point. Um, I still have pictures and stuff. I've actually got an entire yeah. photo album. It's it looks like an encyclopedia of all the dogs that he had throughout his wow. life with little stories he'd write on the back of it about the dog and how well it had hit a trail and how well it would tree and how well it would do. And then in the, one of the last lines always be in. And he's dead. <laughs> you know, the dog died. <laughs> you, know, like but, you know, there was, there was always that, that culture of being around family. That's actually, that makes me think of, um, a regret that I have is my, um, grandfather on my mother's side, my step grandfather on my mother's side. Um, I never really paid much attention to what he was talking about as I was you know, growing up and everything. And not, you know, in the years before he passed, he starts talking about all this interesting stuff when he was younger, where he was like doing stuff with like really high up people and like Chicago politics and stuff. And I was in my head, I was like, why haven't you fucking <laughs> asked this guy about his interesting life way earlier? Because like 
it's kind of too late now. And, and so I never really got a chance to flesh out a lot of that stuff. And, and so that's a regret of mine is like, maybe people just need to like care more about the people in their lives because everybody's interesting and yep. has a story to tell. So it's always yeah. interesting to see where somebody comes from and what they dealt with to get here or where they're at and you know, how they yeah. got to where they're at in life. You know, that's what I always yeah, say that you know, for sure. there's a lot, so many people that are younger that don't, they don't even know where their parents or their grandparents or their aunts or their uncles came from or what they dealt with to get where they're at. You know, I mean, that's, that's, yep. that's what built this country, regardless good or bad. That's your history. That's it's, an, it's important to know those things. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that I, I'm maybe doing this podcast where I interview authors all the time uh, for the last 10 years has kind of clued me into like, Hey, when you talk to people, it, you're pretty much always going to get something fascinating. So I, I kind of benefited from what? that perspective got dropped on me. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, that's, so. that's one of the reasons that people write, you know, there's a, they're, they're interested in a culture regardless of whether it's literary yep. crime, fantasy, it all has, there's a realism to it that creates those characters in those situations, you know, regardless of how they flip yeah. upside down, you know, yeah, it comes, always comes from a real place. Yep. So going, uh, because we probably should be wrapping up pretty soon. Um, going back to the book, and I don't even know if this is a good question, but I'm going to ask it anyway. Um, is there anything that you're hoping that people will take away from this book or um, anything like that? Or are you just looking for people to have a good, you know, good time reading a book? Uh, I, I would like them. I mean, even though other people know about the horrors of war, but just to, just to understand um, – something more about humanity, you know, what, what people have to offer and the hardships that people actually go through, you know, um, you know, yeah, war is a horrible thing. Mental health is a horrible thing. Um, yeah. Working in a factory can sometimes be a horrible thing. Uh, uh, age is a horrible thing, but you know, it's, it's something we all have to deal with, you know, uh, good or yeah. bad, you know, it's just, you, uh, it, I guess it's that in the book, it's a lot about choices, you know, it's positive or negative, but you know, choice A ends up interpreting choice B, which creates uh, this action to a chain reaction to this reaction. You know, um, I hope it shines a light on it. Regardless, I know people, you know, I've heard people say it's bleak, but I hope it shines a, a, a bigger light on blue collar and working class people and the things that they go through and strive, you know, because they are just normal people, you know. Mm-hmm. Just trying to get by. They just want to be left alone sometimes. But they're just trying to get by. The best <laughs> you know, they don't. They don't want to be bothered by lots of politics and stuff like that. You know. Well, one of the things that, um, as I got toward the end of it, that I thought was great was that it ends more optimistic than maybe you would think it does, and it does play on that whole idea of choices and like when we make, even if the right choice is the hard choice it's because of X, Y, Z. I feel like there was kind of an optimism or like uh, um, that kind of a thing at the end of it. And that was um, in a book like this, that is so bleak and everything. Um, I think it was a really great way to kind of tie things up is like, you know, it, this isn't like the glorifying crime kind of like no, no. thing. It's like, Hey, shit happens to people and it's hard and sometimes it's impossible, but like it's possible to go, you know, on the right path instead of, you know, a wrong path. It's just, it's probably not easy to do or something like that. Like that kind of, I know I, I 
I was kind of verbose about that, but like, that's kind of the feeling I was left with, which was, which was cool. Right. Yeah. You know, the original, the original rough draft, I think, uh, and not a spoiler or anything, but I think, uh, the way I had it was that Nathaniel and miles aren't together. Um, and there's a thing that they cross paths and Nathaniel ends up, um, murdering Shelby, which doesn't happen in the book. And then the way it ended was that miles ended up finding out how this happens and then ends up killing Nathaniel, which doesn't happen in the book either. It was, a it was a completely different, different ending. Um, so, and which we went back to a lot of bad choices to get there. <laughs> I still had the whole LSD trip and all those types of things. Too, yeah. So, yeah. 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 I liked it. And in my mind, I was like, is this an evolution of um, Frank's writing or cause I, I, but, and then I questioned myself again, I'm like, ha, am I painting his writing as more, more violent or negative than, you know, it actually is. So like, but um. Uh, the ending and the way it, the way it plays out really stood out to me as like, um, like not necessarily refreshing from you personally as an author, but refreshing, refreshing maybe right now for like the way things are in the world to see the book end up this way was like, it's kind of the kind of story I think I want or need at the moment. So, right. Um, yeah, it was Good timing on that. More, <laughs> I guess it's more a little, uh, realistic. I guess you could say it's, this is probably the most realistic book that I've written. Not the others aren't there's elements of realism, but this is probably the most just, I guess, grounded book that I've written as far as, you know, really shining a light on, uh, you know, the, the middle-class blue collar working class folks, that kind of thing where you, as you said, where it's not just action. I mean, there's action in the book and there's movement in the book, but it's not like nonstop violence and blood and gore. And, right. Yep. Somebody's not getting hit in the yeah. head with a two by four shot in the face or, <laughs> you know. Yeah. And sometimes I think that that type of, um, there's an author, Megan Abbott, who, uh, yeah. I love and her, like when I was, uh, one of her more recent books, it occurred to me that like, there's never of like a weapon that causes problems. It's never, it's always like the internal struggles of people and their flaws and like their actions is what drives all of like the terror and the drama and stuff. And it's so effective because it's just so relatable, I think. Yeah. It's always that underlying tension, you know, it's yeah. What, what's going to happen. It's that under. Yeah. Yeah. I know exactly what you're talking about. Yeah. yeah she's really good at that. She's yeah. She's a brilliant author. Yeah, she's she yeah. And fingers crossed. I want to, I know she's got another one coming out. So I would love to talk to her because I've been aware, I've been reading her stuff for years and, um, have not, have not talked to her, but she's, yeah, just a really impressive person. So, so you've got, you've got something that you're working on now. Yeah. I've been working on it probably since 2018 off and on. So, yeah. Yeah. I've just turned in cool. 120 rough pages to my agent to look over and make a proposal to, to FSG and see where we go. So are you doing um, now that uh, now that there's not as much a, of a why, why am I stumbling over this now that a pandemic isn't restricting things the way that it was? Are you doing like promotions and readings and stuff for for back to the dirt? Uh, we're doing some stuff. Um, we're going to do well. 
I'm going to be leaving on the 17th. I've got an event in Oklahoma on, on the 18th at the Panhandle College. I'm doing a thing out there with them. Um, there's an associate professor that when he was in, I guess, like grad school, he had interviewed me, did an interview with me, and now he's teaching there. I wouldn't know if I would come out. Uh, there's a grant nice. to bring an author out every year. for It's called the No Man's uh, Land Reading Series. And I said, cool. And then on the way back home, we're going to go down to Mississippi, and I'm doing an event down at uh, Oxford at the uh, Square Books. I'm going to go down there and sign stock. And then uh, there's uh, a radio show thing they have, like, I think it's – once a week or a couple times a month. And I get to go on there for 15 minutes and I uh, read for five minutes and do like a 10 minute interview. And it, it goes to, I guess it's kind of like an NPR type thing. And they have musicians there that play afterwards and it goes through all the radio stations that connect to the, to the state. And then I'll come home. There's a couple other podcasts I'm doing. And then we're doing a, an event at Carmichael's in Louisville on the release day of the book. And then two days after that, we're doing a thing at Beefo Brady's for like a hometown release thing. We're doing on a Thursday nice. in, 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 uh, in the, in the, at the restaurant, uh, Ashley Irwin, um, she's gonna, she's gonna do it with me. Uh, I don't know if, if you ever heard her read. No. Wow. She's a hell of a, I mean, she just <laughs> nails the, the voices and everything. Well, I mean, it's her book of course, but she just really nails it. She's right. going to be there. Um, but nice. your cabin books is coming down for that to sell books. And then, uh, there's a couple other podcasts we're doing some stuff and I guess whoever else reaches out, you know, go from there and see what happens. Um, I think there's a couple of, uh, like, uh, possibly places to, to write essays and things like that for, um, we were talking cool. about that before, uh, Rose left. Um, she, she's on vacation, I think for a week because she was trying to figure out either to use the, uh, afterward in the book or if I had anything else, that I could write about. And then I was like, well, I've actually got some stuff on my laptop that we've never used before. If you know, if you want to read over and see what you want to do. So yeah, there's a bunch of little things going on. So we'll see. see what happens. Sweet. But yeah. They're, they're actually doing, as you said, people are actually in person again. So. <laughs> yeah. 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 I, um, I'm still super cautious. Cause like, you know, now that I've gone through that treatment, like compromised immune system and stuff. Oh but, yeah. I um, can understand that. I can definitely understand that. It's, it's, it's heartening to see that like um, people um, can do some of the stuff that they were doing before. So especially like, uh, you know, we haven't talked in years, but I, I talked to so many people who had to figure out how to promote a book in a pandemic. And, and um, so I'm happy for you that this is coming out uh, on the tail end of that stuff. So that hopefully it's like not as, you know, restricting or, or, or yeah, something. because I had a buddy that released a book right in the middle of all that. And it's like, it kind of destroyed him being able to do it. He had all these things lined up and made all these connections and then he couldn't do anything. It was just kind of like, oh, yeah. Oh, yep. Yeah. Sucks. So, um, <laughs> yeah, weird time. Um, but I'm glad I'm always, I'm always so fucking happy when I get to read something new from you and um, appreciate it. I'm, I'm glad. Yeah. I'm glad we got to, catch up after I was listening to the last interview we did, I think was, you know, for Savage. So, so long ago, um, like it's a whole different life, but, um, thank you so much for, um, anything you need giving me a great thing to read. I appreciate it. Yeah. I really appreciate it. Yeah. 